consequences. In Genesis chapter 37, I'm going to read several verses, but they are throughout the chapter. The first one is verse 3. Verse 3, we read about Joseph, Israel, that's Jacob. Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Verse 12, this is speaking of the brothers of Joseph who had gone out to feed the flock. His brethren went to feed their flock in Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Do not your brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you unto them. And Joseph said, Here am I. And he said, Go and see if it's well with your brethren, and well with the flocks. And bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, or Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now verse 26. Verse 26. They have taken Joseph and they have put him in a pit because they hated him. Their plan was to kill him, but now they're deciding what to do. So we read in verse 26, And Judah said to his brethren, Judah is one of the brothers, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. Well, there passed by some Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now verse 31. They took Joseph's coat, that's his brothers, they killed a kid of the goats, they dipped the coat in the blood, they sent the coat of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Do you know whether or not this is your son's coat? And he knew it, and he said, verse 33, It is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn in pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, and he put sackcloth upon his loins, and he mourned for his son for many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, I will go down to my grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say, praise the Lord. And you may be seated. Remember now the subject today is choices and consequences. Now we've learned how deceitful the heart of human beings can be. In our last study, I spoke to you about amazing depravity and amazing grace. The brothers of Joseph are typical of the depravity of the human heart. Human beings are desperately wicked. According to Jeremiah the prophet, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things as capable of the most unimaginable 
ungodly act. So these brothers of Joseph threw him into a deep, dark, dry well, and then they sat down to thank the Lord for their food, while Joseph was crying to them for mercy. They planned, of course, to murder him, but they had a a, a change of plans, as we know. One brother, Reuben, said, let's put him down into this uh, cistern. It was a dry well. And he intended later to come back and to get him. He didn't have enough courage to say what he should have said publicly in front of his brothers. His other brother, Reuben, said, well, let's sell him. Why should we kill him? We can be rid of him by selling him uh, to somebody going into Egypt. Joseph's brothers did this with no smiting of conscience whatsoever, even without a hint of pity. And they thought so little of him that they were willing to take 20 pieces of silver just to be rid of him. And then to add insult to injury, they go back home and lie to their aged father about his favorite son. They tell him, we found this coat. They had put animal blood on it. Is this Joseph's coat? And of course, we just read, he said, it is. And he was absolutely broken. He was broken, and he wept, and he cried. And uh, as I will tell you in a few minutes, I think he did some other things too. We're going to learn two lessons today, and here are the two lessons I'm going to tell you up front. People got a, they get in a huff sometimes about the sovereignty of God and the will of man. So I want to clear the issue for you today and tell you that you're free to make any choice you want to make. But what I want you to learn is that choices have consequences. And we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we will escape, if we're an unbeliever, judgment, or if we're believers, chastisement, for sin and disobedience. The Lord will punish the unbeliever in his sin, and he will punish the believer for his sin. Wicked Haman, of whom we read in the book of Esther, was an enemy of God and the people of God, and he built a gallows 75 feet high upon which he planned to hang Mordecai. But he himself, Haman himself, was hanged upon those very gallows. He made the choices, and he paid the price. David, who was certainly a child of God, but greatly sinned against the Lord in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, endured the loss of a newborn son and two grown sons because of his sin. Now, we may not be a Haman or a Judas, but we must remember that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. Eliphaz says this in the book of Job, Happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Lord. David said, The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Psalm 118, verse 18. Solomon said, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not be weary of his correction. Paul said to the Christians in Corinth, When we Christians are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. 
And Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So using this narrative, I want to talk to you today about this most misunderstood doctrine. And to understand these two things, we have to remember these two lessons. One, choices have consequences, and secondly, the Lord chastens whom He loves. So when we look at this situation in Genesis 37, all of this confusion, all of this chaos, poor Jacob losing his favorite son, Joseph, the brothers hating him, throwing him into a pit, planning to murder him, and I've already talked to you about the last two or three studies how the sovereign hand of God using the personality of those brothers prevented that in order to fulfill the dreams that he had given Joseph, that one day his brothers are going to bow down to him. And of course, that's why they hated him, or at least that's, that added to their hatred according to Genesis 37. Here's the question. How did all of this come about? Why did all of this come about? This trouble that has come upon the house of Jacob. Now we know that there are secondary causes that would include the youthfulness and the naivety of Joseph, the hatred and the envy of his brothers, but we have to dig a little deeper to find the foundational cause of this tragedy. And I'm going to answer this question uh, in several ways. First, as I've already taught you, and I think we'll have this up on the board, last week we looked at Deuteronomy 29:29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. Now it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That is, they belong there, they are at home there, they are not for us to know. The things that are revealed belong to us. The Lord has revealed certain things for certain reasons. And one major reason that He has revealed certain things is that we might know the will of the Lord and by His grace in faith walk in obedience thereto. Here expressed in this verse of do all the words of this law. That was for Israel. Now we're not under the law for salvation. We're not even under the law for sanctification. We have been delivered from its curse and from its role as our schoolmaster. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, the law was our schoolmaster, our pedagogos, our tutor, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So how do we know how to live then? Well, we're led by the Spirit of the Lord according to the Word of the Lord. But remember this, even though we're not under the law for salvation and we're not under the law for sanctification, we are never led by the Spirit of the Lord to do anything contrary to the law or to the written Word. Stealing is still wrong, lying is still wrong, covetousness, all of these things are still wrong, following after holiness is still right. So the Spirit of the Lord who inspired the Word of the Lord is not going to lead us to do anything that's contrary to what He says is right or wrong in the law. So then, through faith in the Messiah, 
our Lord Jesus, we are delivered from the curse and the condemnation of the law, but we are not delivered from the chastisement that comes because of disobedience. When and if we willingly and knowingly walk, especially continuously so, contrary to the revealed will of God, we are subject to the chastening hand of God. The Lord, I say it again, the Lord has given us the Scriptures that we might know what pleases Him. We might know what His will is and how we are to walk. And when we walk contrary to that, we are subject to chastisement. Now here's what we're told in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration, a word that means God breathed. Theos, nustos, God breathed by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the believer, might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all work. Now in this verse, this 2 Timothy 3, Paul basically, virtually, is telling us what Moses has told us in the Deuteronomy 29, 29 passage that all Scripture is given to the children of God for the purpose of revealing the will of God that we might walk in obedience thereto. He says the Word of God is, is given for the teachings of God. That's doctrine. For rebuking error, that's reproof. For correcting faults, that's correction. For instruction, for right living, that's instruction in righteousness. He says it's limited to the believer. He says that the man of God that may be perfect. That word is a word that means complete. It's a Greek term that means complete. Having everything that we need to know what God's will is and to walk in His sight in a way that is pleasing to Him. So pleading ignorance won't do. We can't plead ignorance. Because when we plead ignorance of God's will, we're only confessing spiritual laziness. Because we've got the Word, and we have to be in the Word, and learn the Word, and walk according to the Spirit of the Word. All we need to know to live as it pleases the Lord in willing and loving obedience is in the inspired Scriptures. So here's a second lesson for us. Choices, the choices we make, have consequences. I'm going to say this several times today because I want you to get it. What can happen when a child of God walks in disobedience? Chastisement. Choices have consequences, and the consequence could be the chastening hand of the Lord. Now, disobedience may take many forms, or it may go down many avenues. It could be the lust of the eyes. It could be the lust of the flesh. It could be the pride of life. And listen, this doesn't have to be sexual in nature. It doesn't have to be sexual in nature. Now, we've got an addiction today in the United States in a sexual addiction. I heard about a fellow that went to a psychiatrist, and uh, the psychiatrist uh, said, I'm going to give you some tests before uh, I get into some more involved lessons here. And said, okay. So he said, I'm going to draw some things on the board. You tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. So he drew a circle, and it said, what comes to your mind? It said, sex. He drew a square. So, what comes to your mind? Said sex. Triangle. 
what comes the first thing come to mind? Says sex. He said, well, it looks to me like you've got a sexual problem. Well, no, he said, it's not my fault, doctor. He said, you drew all those bad things on the board. <laughs> you see, all of this stuff comes from within the heart of man. It comes from within the mind of man. The problem is inside of us. The problem is not in the world that God made. The problem comes because of disobedience to it, not believing the Lord, not coming to Christ, not walking with our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these problems may not be sexual in nature. They may involve covetousness. They may involve not being content with what the Lord has given us and wanting what someone else has given us. It may involve unthankfulness, ungratefulness, grumbling, murmuring against the Lord's providence in our lives. And like disobedience, chastisement can come in many different forms and in many different ways. I've already mentioned some of them, a a severe case of chastisement came upon David. He lost a newborn son, the son born to Bathsheba. He lost two grown sons, Absalom and Amnon, because of disobedience. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find that even the Apostle Paul was given what he called a what? A thorn in the flesh. Why was Paul given a thorn in the flesh? To remind him of the pride that he could have because of how much had been revealed unto him. I think we might have this on the board. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll tell you where it is if you want to look at it in your own Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, the King James says, to beat me up, lest I should be exalted above measure. And for this thing I sought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concludes and says, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now let me read that passage to you. You can leave that up there on the board. Let me read this to you from the English translation because I think it will help you to understand what is being said here. He says, To keep me from being puffed up with pride because of the many wonderful things shown unto me, I was given a painful physical ailment whence acts as Satan's messenger to beat me and keep me from being proud. Three times I prayed to the Lord about this, and I asked Him to take it away, but His answer was, My grace is all you need, for my power is greatest when you are weak. I am most happy then to be proud of my weaknesses in order to feel the protection of Christ's power over me. Now let me ask you this. Did the Lord love Paul? Of course He did. Most assuredly He did. Did the Lord love David? Yes, He did. In fact, He chastens His children because He loves them. Listen again to these passages that I've already mentioned. Happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Lord. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Don't be weary of His correction. And as Paul says, when we are chastened, We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. 
Don't forget David's testimony. He said, The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. That's Psalm 118 and verse 18. And so this brings us full circle to the original question concerning Jacob and Joseph and the brothers of Joseph. How did this all come about? What is the cause of all of this trouble? So I want to reestablish something here. I want you to know for a fact, I asked this question, does the Lord love Joseph? Well, yes, he does. So why is all this happening to him? He's 17 years old in Genesis 37. He's going to go through 13 years of severe trial. From the time he is 17 years old until the time that he is 30 years old, he's going to be sold twice as a slave. He's going to be lied about several times. He's going to be imprisoned for no reason whatsoever. And he's going to be deprived of seeing the father whom he loves for 13 years. 13 years. Does that sound like the love of God to you? Well, if this had been our experience, many of us would be saying, why is this happening to me? I've done nothing to deserve this. Not this, oh yeah, I've sinned, but I don't think I've done that badly. But you know what? In all of the life of Joseph, we don't read of one complaint that came out of his mouth. I want to assure you, I'm sure you're convinced, but I want to assure you that the Lord does love Joseph. And I remind you of a passage in Acts chapter 7, verse 9, where we're told that the, the brothers of Joseph were moved with envy, and they sold him, but it says, but God was with him. Well, what about Joseph's father? Joseph's father is named Jacob. His name has been changed to Israel. Does the Lord love him? Well, yes, he does. The Bible tells us explicitly, Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated. Isn't that right? Romans chapter 9, verse 13, Malachi chapter 1. Jacob have I loved. And yet here's this old man who's been doing the best that he can to serve the Lord. And now he's being told that his favorite son, the son of his old age, Joseph, has been attacked by a wild beast, and no doubt he is dead. And we can read about that here in Genesis chapter 37 where they go back and lie to their father, is this your son's coat? They didn't say our brother. Is this your son's coat? Yeah, well, we found this coat. It's got blood on it. Well, Jacob, was he was horrified. His heart sank. And he wept, and he wept, and he wept. And he said, no doubt a wild beast has torn my son into pieces. And over and over again, you know he did, he replayed in his mind what must have happened to his precious son. And no doubt he punished himself often for sending Joseph to find his brothers in the first place. I'm sure he said, I shouldn't have sent a 17-year-old boy on a trip like that. It's really my fault. It's all my fault. So what's going on? What's happening here? Well, let's consider two options, two possible explanations. Maybe you have not heard of it, but we have this thing in the Bible that we call a generational curse. A generational curse is when the parents do or don't do something, and it's carried down through several generations. 
give you an example. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, the Lord is walking with his disciples, and they saw a man that was blind from his birth. I'm reading from the Bible now, John 9. And his disciples said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that's an idea of a generational curse. In this particular case, Jesus said that the cause of his blindness was not his parents' fault nor his fault, but that the works of God might be revealed in him. That is, so that Jesus might heal him, thus showing that he, in fact, was the Messiah, is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. So where did the disciples get this idea? Well, in Exodus chapter 20, listen to this. When God gave the law, he said this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, and you shall not worship them, you shall not serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, listen to this now, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We read again in Numbers chapter 14, the Lord is long-suffering. He is of great mercy. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. This is called a generational curse. Those families who would not listen to or obey the Lord were destined to suffer for it for several generations. Of course, there's a practical side to this also. All of us suffer from this without a doubt. If a man or woman leads their family wrong by their actions, by their attitudes, or by their reactions, or by their instructions, or the lack of those instructions, it will likely affect several future generations, even down to his great-great-grandchildren and beyond. Now there are other types of generational curses. Noah cursed his son Ham with the curse of servitude in Genesis 9:25. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And for nearly all of history the sons and daughters of Ham have been in servitude to other races. So the question for us as we look at these troubles in the family of Jacob is this, is this a result of a generational curse? Is all of these problems that are happening to Jacob and his family, is that a result of a generational curse? And I answer, no, it is not. When, Jake, when Joseph was on the run, or when Jacob, rather, Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau, he spent the night in a place that we call the house of God, Bethel. Remember that? That's when he saw that ladder stretching down from heaven, and angels ascending and descending. And he named the place Bethel, the house of God. And it was at Bethel that the Lord spoke to Jacob, and he assured him that he loved him, that he would be with him wherever he went, that he would bless him, that he would lead him. So Jacob is not under a generational curse. But there's a second principle that we must consider, and that's the law of sowing and reaping. 
Now, law of sowing and reaping may be simply stated, what you sow is what you reap. And this law can operate in different ways. For example, you can have what's called the boomerang principle. You know what a boomerang is? You throw it away, you throw it out there, and it comes back and hits you. On Sunday evening, we watched sometimes those funny, uh, America's funny videos, whatever it's called, and two or three times I've seen people who throw things and it comes back and hits them in the head. There's a boomerang principle about the law of sowing and reaping. For example, the Bible says, cast your bread upon the waters and after many days you'll find it. In other words, we've all heard people say, well, you know, uh, you do something good and it'll come back to you. You do something bad, it'll come back to you. So this principle, this boomerang principle, can work for good or bad, for blessings or chastisement. Paul said to this, this to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he said, He went sows sparingly, shall reap sparingly. He went sows bountifully, shall reap bountifully. If I plant five tomato plants, I would not expect to reap what I would have gotten if I had planted 10 tomato plants. The more you plant, the more you reap. The more you give, the more you get. And Paul was talking to the Corinthians about giving. The Lord Jesus had a word to say about this. He said, give to others and God will give to you. Indeed, you will receive a full measure, a generous helping, poured into your hands all that you can hold. The measure you use for others is the one that God will use for you. That's Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. This is the law of sowing and reaping as it pertains to blessings. But there's another side of it as it pertains to chastisement. It says in Proverbs 22, 8, He that sows iniquity shall reap vanity. We read, all of us are familiar with this verse from Gal Galatians chapter 6, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I, I'm not going to go verse by verse here, but if you want to turn over from Genesis 37 to Genesis 27, let me remind you of a couple of things. Genesis chapter 27. Seven. This goes back to when Jacob was a, a young man. And we're told in the very first verse of Genesis 27 that Isaac, who is the father of Jacob and Esau, was old and he was nearly blind. And then we're told in verses 2 through 4 that Isaac called his firstborn son Esau to prepare for him his favorite meal that he might officially convey the birthright blessing because Isaac was the oldest son, and the oldest son gets the birthright blessing. Then in verses 5 through 10, Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife, that's Esau and Jacob's mother, she overheard the conversation and she concocted a plan for Jacob to obtain the birthright blessing. She said, I want you to have that blessing, and you're going to get it. And in verses 11 through 13, Jacob protested, but his mother was a strong-willed woman. She overrode him. 
She overrode his protest. She said, you just do what I tell you to do, and if there's a curse, it'll come on me. You just, you just do what I tell you to do. And what she did was she got some of Esau's clothes and made Jacob put on his clothes. Uh, she fixed a stew, just like she knew Isaac would like, that he sent Esau out to hunt and kill the animal and prepare the animal and cook the animal and bring it to him. And she put some hair on uh, uh, Jacob so that he would feel like his brother, who was a hairy man. And uh, you might think if you read about Jacob in today's terminology that he was a pretty cool guy because he says in the King James Version, I'm a smooth man. <laughs> I'm a smooth man, he said. My brother's a hairy man. And he said, well, my father reaches out and touches my hand. He's going to see I'm deceiving him, and I'm going to get a curse. And his mother said, look, I'll take care of the curse. It'll be on me. You just do what I tell you to do. Verses 14 through 17, Rebekah prepared the meal, and she also prepared Jacob so as to deceive his father. Let's read this. Verse 14. She went and she fetched, and she brought, he brought them to his mother, and his mother made some savory meat, such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment, that's clothing, of her oldest son Esau, which were with her in the house. And she put those clothes on Jacob, her youngest son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. And she gave him the meat and the bread when she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And uh, he came to his father, verse 18, and he said, My father, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Who are you, my son? The old man couldn't see, and it was, an old, it was a tent. It was dark. They didn't have electric lighting. He said, Who are you? And he said, Well, I'm, I'm Esau, your firstborn, verse 19. I'm Esau your firstborn. I've done what you told me to do. Sit down, eat my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said in verse 20, how is it that you found it so quickly? <laughs> and he said, well, the Lord thy God brought it to me. And Isaac said in verse 21, come near. Let me smell you. Everybody's got an aroma about them that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my son Esau or not. And Jacob went near, verse 22, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. I don't know whether the old man did it or not, but it says, act like he doesn't. And he discerned him not, it says, because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Then he asked him again, verse 20. 24, are you my very son Esau? And he said, I am. He said, bring this food in, let me eat it, and then I'll bless you. And he presented that meal to his father, and he lied at least three times to his father. And then Jacob stood before his father and stole the birthright blessing, verses 26 through 30. And then when we get down to verse 41, when Esau comes in and he learns that Jacob has stolen his birthright blessing, he is so upset, verse 41, that he plans to kill Jacob once his father is dead. So now the woman who concocted the plan to begin with, verse 41 through 45, Rebekah, she comes up with a second plan. 
And this one is to save her son Jacob from the fury of his brother Esau. So to seal the plan, verse 46, she complained to Isaac that Jacob must be sent away to keep him from marrying one of the Canaanite women. Oh, she said, I won't be able to stand it if he marries one of these Canaanites. Why don't you send him over to Laban's house, over to my brother's house, and let him find a a wife over there. That was the, the lie that she told. And so they sent Jacob away, and how long was he gone? He's gone for 20 years. Thought he was just going to be gone for a little while. His mother died while he was gone. It was the last time he saw his mother. Gone for 20 years. And what do you think now? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 37. You can go back and read these uh, chapters for yourself. They're so very interesting. Back when we were studying the book of Genesis many years ago, I told you that although Jacob lied when he went before his father, and his father said, are you my firstborn? And he said, I am. We can go before God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he asked, are you my only begotten son? We can say, I am, because I stand in him. I stand in him, and he doesn't see me. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's another story. we got to deal with this Genesis chapter 37 about all of these problems that have befallen the house of Jacob. We've considered the lessons that are already learned about the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. We learned last week that the more people wrestle against the revealed will of God, the more they fulfill the secret will of God. Joseph's brothers knew what his dreams said. His dreams said that one day Joseph was going to be a lord, a governor, and his brothers are going to have to bow down to him, and they didn't like it. They didn't like the plan. They didn't like God's will. And so they fought against it, and in fighting against it, they became the prime movers of the plan. They are the ones that God used to bring it to pass. So we must walk according to what we see is his revealed will in his word. So what's going on with the house of Jacob in Genesis chapter 37? I suggest to you that Jacob is suffering the consequences of the choices he has made. Why did Jacob end up in Mesopotamia with his uncle Laban, who's the father of Rachel and Leah? How did he end up down there for 20 years? He ended up there because he deceived his father and he stole the birthright blessing. Is that not right? What happened to Jacob while he was in Mesopotamia? When he got down there to Laban and he was there for 20 years, what happened to him? Here's what happened to him. He was deceived time and time again. He was deceived regarding Rachel. How was he deceived? He was deceived by disguise. How had he deceived his father? He deceived his father by disguise. So how was he deceived? He was deceived by disguise. Laban disguised Leah 
I was in a store yesterday, and I saw a woman with a veil on, had a veil up to here, or you could see her eyes. She had a headpiece on, and she had just her eyes, and I wouldn't have known if she was Sally, Joni, or Maria. I wouldn't have known if she had been a friend of mine. And so Jacob had disguised himself to deceive his father Isaac, so Leah was disguised as Rachel to deceive him. He was deceived regarding his wages ten times. His wages were changed ten times. So he lost more to Laban by deception than he gained by deceiving his father for the birthright. In the birthright blessing, it was said, Esau, that's the oldest brother, would serve Jacob, that's the youngest brother. But he didn't add not until the youngest brother has served Laban for 20 years. He didn't add that. But that's what happened. In getting Leah for a wife, Jacob was made to respect the rights of the firstborn. Who was the oldest daughter? Leah was the oldest daughter. And so Jacob was forced to respect the rights of the firstborn because Leah was the firstborn daughter. And what was Jacob's reaction? when he found out that it was Leah the next morning. So he never loved Leah. He loved Rachel. What was his reaction? He was enraged. Just as Esau was enraged when Jacob stole the birthright blessing. And if we all knew the truth, I guarantee you, Jacob wanted to kill Laban. <laughs> Just as Esau wanted to kill him. When Jacob deceived his father Isaac, remember Isaac was nearly blind. He was in a dark tent. And how was Jacob deceived? He was in a dark tent, and he couldn't see who his bride really was until the next morning. And if you think having two wives is a blessing, let me assure you <laughs> that Jacob was in turmoil nearly all the time. The woman he loved was barren, and the woman he never loved had one child after another. And the woman that he loved was always complaining because she couldn't have children. In one place she said, give me children or I die. And he said, am I in the place of God? I can't give you children. God has to give you children. So the woman he loved couldn't have children. The woman he didn't love had one child after another. The woman he loved was always complaining because she couldn't have children. And the woman he didn't love was always complaining because he didn't love her. And she didn't know why. He's in a polygamous relationship with two sisters, and they each have a maid, and they will also employ those maids in a continuous battle to have the love and the children of Jacob. And there's a lot more, but I'll spare you for right now. Fast forward many years. Now Jacob has 12 boys, and all of them are sinners, but one of them seems more responsible than the other. That's Joseph. And so the chastening hand of the Lord, the hand of God, the God who loves Jacob, takes that one boy out of Jacob's life by the deceitful, lying, hating, scheming brothers of Jacob. You want to know what's happening in the house of Jacob in Genesis 37, I'll tell you what's happening. The chickens are still coming home to roost in the life of Jacob. My friends, listen to me. God is going to make Jacob 
a saint. He's going to make him a man molded after his will. He's going to bend him, and he's going to pull on him, and he's going to chasten him until he's conformed to the image that he wants him to be conformed to. That's what's going to happen. Jacob is being chastened for two reasons. He's been chastened, number one, for the choices that he made, because choices have consequences. And he's being chastened because the God who loves him and is molding him into the image of one who is submissive to his will. God loves him, and he's going to mold him into a submissive man. I would like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. Would you do that? And I'll try to conclude over here in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. And this is the secret of why those who are called of the Lord generally speaking, suffer more than those who are in the world. I think I told you, in fact I know I have, about an old woman. She was an illiterate woman. She was in the hospital. She had been very, very sick. Her bones were sticking through her skin. But she had a strong faith in the Lord. She loved the Lord. And uh, when somebody said to her one day, why do you think all this is happening here to you? Aunt Annie, this is what she said. She said, the Lord sure do must love me to do me like this. The Lord sure do must love me to do me like this, she said. She's the woman that when the nurses came in, she said, I shoots a little Jesus at them. That was her way of saying I witnessed to them. I tell them about the Lord. The secret of why people who love the Lord are the most dedicated to Him suffer more than others, have more problems than others, is because the Lord loves them and He's going to conform them to His will. And He gets glory from them in adverse circumstances, more glory than he does when everything goes smoothly and everything goes right. You know and I know that when we run into a roadblock, then we call on God. When we run into a problem, then we call on God, sincerely call on it. But as long as things are going smoothly, we don't give him a whole lot of thought. In Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, this is what we read. We are surrounded, verse 1, we are surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses. All these people who have died in faith and gone on to heaven, he pitches as a great crowd of witnesses in a coliseum. And he said, so we are going to be in a race here. We're in a race right now. Those of us who are in this world are in a race. So put aside every weight Everything that hinders you, everything that is a weight to you, everything that would slow you down, and the sin that so easily besets you, put that aside and run with patience the race that is set before us. And while you run, keep your eyes on Jesus, verse 2, who is the author and the finisher of faith who for the joy that was set before him. <clears throat> See, he's using the Lord Jesus Christ 
as the greatest example of the one who was the most submissive to the Father's will and suffered the most. Nobody suffered like our Lord Jesus Christ, and nobody was perfectly submissive to the Father's will but he. So he says, look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? I think it was not only doing the Father's will, I think it was our redemption. It was redeeming us. For consider him, verse 3, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. That's just a way of saying everything that was done to the Lord Jesus by men, he didn't deserve. It was a contradiction. He was a perfectly good man, a perfect man, the Son of God, against whom they did all kind of unimaginable things, even mocked him while he hung upon the cross. If you're the Son of God, come down, and we'll believe you. Save us and save yourself. He says, consider him that endured all of that contradiction, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds, lest you are overcome with whatever you may be going through. You have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. No matter how hard you think you have fought sin, you haven't drawn any blood yet. And he said, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son or my daughter, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not faint when you are rebuked of him. Now I'm going to interject something here. And you'll have to think about it, and you'll have to pray about it, and you can go back and research it yourself. But I'm going to interject this, that most of the trials and the troubles that we have in our lives are sent to us by the Lord. And they're sent to us by the Lord, regardless of the secondary causes. Sometimes we make the bad choice. We make choices, and the choices have consequences. We don't do what we ought to do, or we do what we shouldn't do. But when suffering comes to us, we should be looking unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. Because listen to me now, and this is important. None of the suffering that we suffer is redemptive in nature. We're not suffering. We're suffering because of our sins. We're suffering because we made the wrong choices. But our suffering does not redeem us. It doesn't buy us salvation. The suffering of Christ 2,000 years ago purchased our salvation. His suffering is a redemption of our souls. Our suffering is a result of the Lord's love for us, not allowing us to continue in disobedience. He says, he says, whom the Lord loves, verse 6, he chastens, he scourges every son that he receives. Now here, here's where we come in. If you endure chastening, if you go on believing the Lord, trusting the Lord, praising the Lord, regardless of what comes your way, that's an evidence that God is dealing with you as his child, as sons or daughters. But then he asks a question, what son is there whom the father does not chase him? Well, of course, today, that's a dead question. Can now you get put in jail for chastening your children. But if you're without chastisement, verse 8, 
if you're without chastisement from God, if you can go ahead and spit in the face of the Lord and go ahead and do your own thing and live and do like you want to do and be what you want to be and you think you're going to get away with it, you're just giving evidence you don't belong to Christ. You don't belong to it. I don't care how much scripture you know, I don't care how religious you are, if you can continuously do wrong and the Lord doesn't deal with you about it, then you don't belong to him. Because those whom he loves, he chastens. If you're without chastisement, verse 8, he uses an old term, we don't use it today, he uses the term bastard, illegitimate, probably have a footnote there. You're an illegitimate child, you don't belong to him. You know, when you get in the Kroger line or some other line of Publix or Kroger or grocery store line and you're waiting to get up to check out your food and you look over here in the next aisle and there's a little boy over there that's kicking his mother in the leg and screaming, I want that candy right there. I want that candy. I saw that the other day. And his mother's too embarrassed to do anything about it and she doesn't do anything about it. It's not my business to go over there and say, let me straighten him out for you. <laughs> I can't do that because he's not my child. Right? He's not my child. And the Lord doesn't discipline those who aren't his children. But he will discipline us if we belong to him. He gives an example, an, example, an illustration. He says, look, verse 9, we've had our fathers correct us before, and we gave them reverence. So shouldn't we be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live when he puts us through some chastisement? He said they didn't always have a good motive. Verse 10, verily for a few days they chastened us after their own pleasure. But he does it for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now he says while you're going through it, verse 11, it's not joyous, it's not fun. No, no, no chastening for the moment seems to be joyous, it's grievous. But afterward, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are so exercised by it. You know, when Israel disobeyed the Lord, he said, okay, let's go around the mountain. And they went around the mountain, and they still weren't corrected, and they went around the mountain for 40 years. 40 years. That's a, that's a generation. The Lord, listen, you say, well, I don't, Brother Sass, I just don't believe the, I don't believe the Lord will, would, would do that. Let's, let's, let's take another verse or two here, and I'm going to show you something, then I'm going to close. He says, the chastening that you're going through is something that's not pleasant, but if you're exercised by it, if you say, Lord, I realize that nothing can come into my life that's not for my good. You work out all things after the counsel of your own will. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. I realize that whatever comes my way, through whomever it may come, by whatever means it may come, I realize that it's from your hand, by either permission or command. And Lord, I want to know what you're teaching me. So he says, lift up the hands that hang down, verse 12. Don't be discouraged and talk about quitting. Make straight the paths for your feet, verse 13. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, let it be healed. Follow peace. Get in line with the holiness of God, without which no man shall see the Lord. 
He goes on and he talks about Esau, who's a fornicator, he says in verse 16, for one morsel of meat he sold his birthright. And afterward, when he would have inherited it, there was found no place for him to inherit it. He was a reprobate. You see, if Joseph, if, if Jacob had waited on the Lord, the Lord said right at the beginning, the elders should serve the younger. And if Jacob had waited on the Lord, he'd have worked it out. But he and his mother, oh, okay, well, since God planned that, I'm going to take it into my own hands and I'm going to force it. I'm going to make it happen. You, what you need to do is wait on the Lord. You need to wait on the Lord. I don't know how it would have come out if he had waited on the Lord, but he didn't. As a result of that, he's had trouble, trouble, trouble. Now, I want you to turn to this last passage of Scripture. It's in Corinthians. I believe it's 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Chapter 11. And I'm going to address, in closing, the question that I just posed for you. When some people say, I just don't think the Lord would do things like that today. I can give you a lot of examples. Let me just give you two of them. If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, in the book of Acts, there was a couple who promised to sell their property and give it to the Lord. And remember, they went out, they probably lived somewhere in Franklin. They had, a, they had a little old house that was probably cost them $30,000. Now they can get 800000 for it. But they've already told, they've already told Peter, we're going to give, <laughs> we're going to give all, all the money to the Lord's work. And it went out and 800000 Well, wait a minute. Maybe we just better get a little portion of it. So they went back and they gave a portion of it and God killed both of them. It's in the book of Acts. Peter called Ananias in, and he said, look, while you had the property, wasn't it in your power? You had the choice that you could make. Couldn't you have made a choice? But you didn't. You said you were going to do this. Then you, you changed your mind. You have not lied unto men, he said, but you have lied unto the Holy Spirit. And he said he fell down dead. Then later his wife came in, and he said to her, how did you conspire with your husband to lie to the Holy Spirit? And she fell down dead too. Now, I don't have a problem believing that Ananias and Sapphira were believers who had severe chastisement. Now, let me show you one right here. There's no doubt about this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is about abuse of the Lord's Supper. And he says, when you take the Lord's Supper, verse 27, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, now not is unworthy. We're not talking about your, your worthiness. We're talking about coming to the Lord's Supper with a light, flippant, doesn't matter, no big deal attitude. Unworthily. Nobody is worthy. <laughs> We're drinking a toast to the worthiness of Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. Is that not right? We're not drinking a toast to our worthiness. We're remembering Him and His death. So, he says, let a man examine himself, verse 28. 
And to let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation. Now that word damnation does not mean final damnation. It means it's a temporal damnation. It's a temporal judgment that God is a chastening. To himself not discerning the Lord's body. And he says, for this cause, verse 30. Because people did this, for this cause there are many weak Many are sickly, and many sleep. What does that mean, sleep? It means they're dead. Nowhere in the Bible is a Christian said to die, a believer in Christ. Believers in Christ fall asleep. Unbelievers die. They taste of death, but believers fall asleep. And he says there are many that are weak because the chastening hand of God is upon them. Many are sickly. Oh, my goodness, that's a... That's anathema today that the Lord would make anybody sick. And many sleep. If we would judge ourselves, verse 31, we wouldn't be judged. But verse 32, when we are judged, we are what? Verse 32, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. My friends, there's no way to deny that it is God who did this. It is the Lord. And he does that because he loves us and he doesn't want to condemn us with the world if you let us go on and on in that rebellion and in that sin. He couldn't even be justified himself in taking us to heaven. So before he lets us get that far, he'll take us out. He'll take us out. Why is all of this happening to Jacob in his house? It's because of the chastening hand of the Lord who loves him. That's why. What are we to do? We are to say, Lord, grant me a repentant spirit that I might turn from whatever I'm doing that's not pleasing to you and walk in obedience to your revealed will by your grace looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. May the Lord help us 